Welcome to another episode of Jamming with Jason. Hey, today I have a very special guest with me, Sarah James. And I'm not really sure where this podcast is going to go exactly, but we're going to talk about music probably is going to come up, uh, communications, how we're working as teams. And so stay tuned because you are going to want to listen to this episode because it's going to entertain you as well as educate you. So with that, let's roll the episode. Hi, I'm Jason Mefford, and you're in the right place to start transforming your career and life with this podcast. I've been in the trenches as an executive leader, and now I'm an executive coach and confidential advisor to executives all over the world. I use a multidisciplinary approach to improve learning that drives transformation by getting to the root cause in a practical, no-nonsense way. I love learning and sharing what makes people tick. You get both education and entertainment, since learning shouldn't be boring, right? But that's enough about me. This podcast is a combination of intuitive leadership, neural influence, and mental mastery to take your career and life to levels you've never thought possible. If you're wanting to improve yourself, develop stronger relationships professionally and personally, make quicker, better decisions, and become a more effective leader, then of course, this podcast is for you because you are going to learn how to manage emotions in yourself and others, avoid burnout, stress, and anxiety, master your mind, get people to listen and take action, and become a lifelong learner. And when you do that, you will have a positive mental attitude, executive leadership presence, and the skills to know exactly what to say and do in any situation. I'm glad you're here. So, let's get started. All right, Sarah, welcome. I'm excited to be talking with you today. I know we, we've talked a few times before and um, we both like to go down little rabbit holes. So I'm, I'm excited for today's episode because I'm, I'm not sure what exactly we're gonna talk about, but it's gonna be beneficial for people, right? So, so welcome, Sarah, how you doing? Um, all the better for being here with you, Jason. Thank you so much for inviting me. It is such an honor, especially given some of the great and good that have already appeared on your podcast and from whom I've, I've learned a lot, really. I think it's a fantastic thing you're doing here. Thank you. That's a good way to start stroking my ego to get us going, right? <laughs> <laughs> no bad thing. <laughs> no. Well, before we get started, just you know, for people that aren't familiar with you already, um, just just give kind of a, a brief background as to who you are, what you do. And then, like I said, let's jump in because because we talked before. There's a lot of different places we can go here and we want to make this pretty conversational, entertaining, as well as educational for people. Um, so, yeah, tell tell people a little bit about yourself and then let's start going down some rabbit holes. Excellent. Rabbit holes await. Um, in the meantime, yeah, so uh, I'm Sarah I. James, and uh, I run a business called Getting Words to Work. See what I did there? Oh. And my thing, my obsession is internal audit report writing because I know how to have fun. And um, 
I'm fortunate enough to be able to run tailored internal audit report writing training, but also training for risk and compliance specialists and even people outside assurance functions um, across the globe. So a lot less travel over the past year, but I'm still delivering the training. And last count, I delivered it to over 5,000 people globally. Yeah. Everyone's still alive, no <laughs> visible bruises. Um, and more to the point, they say that, you know, when they follow the, the tips and the techniques I share and the really practical exercises, that it makes their lives there a little bit easier. And, you know, who doesn't need that, especially these days? So you asked a little bit about my background, which you will not be surprised is kind of international. Um, real emphasis on languages. I speak several it's um, open for debate how much sense I make in any of them. I suppose it depends what time of the day you catch me. But um, yeah, about my background, um, maybe not the traditional path into audit. So I started as an academic specializing in languages and literature. So already there was that passion for the word. Um, and I researched and, and taught universities in France and, and the US and the UK and also worked in academic and research and reference publishing in France, the US and the UK. And then what I like to say is I got tired of being poor. <laughs> so I, I ran away to what people call the real world, which still makes me laugh. And I worked in IT and then in finance, which are two of the sectors. IT who, and finance is the real world. <laughs> yeah, it's the real world. And as we know, they, they use language so carefully and judiciously and elegantly not. Um, but when I was uh, in both of those sectors in different companies, um, I started getting a taste of internal audit and... Um, so I've been a member of the Institute of Internal Auditors for quite some time now, of course. I'm a certified internal auditor. And uh, for an extra frisson of amusement, um, I'm on the Technical Guidance Working Group um, in the UK, IIA. So uh, we do a lot of good stuff, I think, or we try to for the members and put out lots of guidance about uh, internal audit engagements, but also about uh, um, fun things like uh, you know, data protection and tax law and really exciting stuff like that. But, you know, trying to help make our members' lives easier. So, yeah, that's what I do in between all of the uh, the teaching and the training and the coaching and the consultancy. Well, I know it's interesting because you said, you know, you transitioned into IT, finance. They obviously have their own language. Internal audit as well has their very own specific language, right? And I think... You know, we'll jump into that more because I think a lot of the language we try to use is a put off mm -hmm. to, to most other people, right? Because we use certain words, uh, you know, to mean certain things, but the rest of the world uses those words to mean something completely different, right? And so when you don't get people to, to, to listen to you or people are kind of, you know, scrunching up their nose when you say something, you're like, what? I'm just talking, right? That's part <laughs> of the reason for it, right? Um, but, I, but I love what you do too. I mean, it's, I, I don't do much training anymore, but if I do, it's only going to be customized training, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, again, there's dime a dozen stuff that's out there. There's not very many people that actually really customize it and make it to what you're doing. So I'm, I'm glad that there's somebody else like you out there that's helping people actually customize this to where 
where where people need to go. I, I think that's interesting what you're saying um, because the customizing, I've just realized as you were speaking, um, it, it gives me a particular insight and it helps me see how internal audit and other assurance functions are developing over the years. Because typically I'll receive about a dozen writing samples from a client so I can tailor the training to their needs. And um, what I see is, is certain things developing. Um, I also see when people respond maybe to periods of crisis Mm -hmm. either by trying something that's completely out there or by going back to what is tried and tested, but maybe not best for, you know, that, um, that situation. I mean, I've got lots of experience with teams across the globe in all sorts of sectors. And so, of course, there are huge cultural differences, not just nationally, regionally, but within, you know, sectors and organizations. Um, and I'll, I'll adapt to those differences, but I'm also seeing the commonalities. You know, what brings internal auditors together across the globe? And one thing I'm thinking is what you were just referring to is the sheer tone deafness that we can sometimes exhibit when we, I'd like to think I don't do it so much because I'm attuned to it after nearly 33 years of working with language and languages, but we do fall back on certain terms that sound at best dry and at worst slightly grudging. And I'm thinking, for instance, the term adequate. Mm. When we assess a control as being adequate. <laughs> now, if somebody's well, I don't know about, I don't know about you, but I love to be considered adequate, right? Isn't that just like one of the biggest compliments you can give somebody? Oh, Sarah, you're adequate. Jason, I think we said that, you know, this isn't the therapy moment to talk about our childhoods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it does tie into people's insecurities. And you think, you know, when you've come across somebody who's put their heart and soul quite sadly, into developing actually what is a very rigorous, well-designed, well-thought-out control. And you say, yes, that's adequate. What a letdown. You know, what's stopping us saying, okay, that's really thorough. I see how you've brought in all the relevant, you know, regulation and you're looking at best practice, you've benchmarked it. So if you can actually get people to do that, that's a really good control. You know, what's stopping us saying it? And the answer is nothing. Well, just just preconceived notions, right? I mean, again, it's it's the this is one of the reasons why I'm trying to shake people a little bit and wake them up, right? Yeah. Because because we just go and use words like adequate, right? Yes. And and we don't think anything of it, but to the person who's hearing it, that's that's pretty offensive, right? You well, know, like 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 you said, somebody's been working really hard. It's like, oh, it's like a C plus, isn't adequate. it? Yeah, right. It's a C plus on something you thought was at least a B plus or maybe an A minus if you caught the teacher on a good day and they're mm -hmm. telling you it's a C plus. Whereas maybe it's an A minus. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and, but, and so, um, so yeah. like you said, I mean, you, you, you call your business getting words to work, right? So, mm. so here, here's one of those things, right? Is, I mean, again, we look at that word adequate. What are some better words? that we could use instead of saying adequate? I would say it depends. Show me, show me your working papers. 
show me your thought process. Tell me about the context. Tell me about your audience. Tell me what it is you want to inspire them to do to improve things in their organization. Because all of those things will influence the words you choose. And I always say in the transaction between writer and reader, um, and one thing I didn't mention is I'm still a professional writer and, and copy editor mm -hmm. um, in between the other things I do. The only person who matters is the reader. And I think very often writers get in their own way and then they get in the reader's way. Um, I think fear is behind a lot of things. So people in risk um, or assurance or audit functions are very risk averse. And I see people falling back on a very narrow, sometimes impoverished vocabulary that they feel is safe. And they say, well, if I pick from, say, this column of pre-approved words, and then I tack on something from this column of phrases that my manager has signed off in a previous report, and then I maybe add a buzzword or two that's making the rounds in the organization, nobody can object to that. But the thing is, their own thoughts, their own insights, their own personality is not coming through. It's lost. You know, so they think they're playing it safe, but actually what they're doing is um, what George Orwell referred to as, you know, gumming together prefabricated words and phrases. And it's tempting because it saves us the trouble of thinking really hard about what we have to say and what are the fewest best words to say it. Um, but it helps us fill up the page pretty quickly with black marks and we can convince ourselves we've done the job. We're rarely delivering good news. So there's another fear element there. Um, you know, we're rarely telling someone in the first line that their risk and control framework is a thing of beauty and a joy forever. You know, at best, we might admit parts of it are adequate and there are even some controls that prove to be effective. You know, here end the lesson um but you know usually we're finding fault and it's how do we convey that clearly and concisely without fear or favor um and also without you know um creating unnecessary conflict or thoroughly discouraging the recipient <laughs> well it's interesting because you brought up orwell Right. Yes. So, you know, again, he's he's actually one of my my favorite authors. Yes. Uh, several. But but it's interesting because, you know, Orwell, uh, what was the term that he used? Uh, word speak, I think. Uh, right? where, where you speak. Yeah. Where it was kind of the dumbing down of the language yes. as well. Right. In the future. And he wrote dystopian novels. So, again, we don't want to live in a George Orwellian dystopia, <laughs> but he was kind of describing, right, <clears throat> what what could happen, and I think what actually is happening, where we dumb down language. You talked mm -hmm. about, you know, pre-approved words, buzzwords, other things like that, right? Because we're we're trying to soften it so much that we're actually not really saying anything at the end of the day. Right. And, You're so and, right. And, and so and whether that's good or whether that's bad, we're kind of dumbing it down both ways. 
And so again, like you said, instead of giving somebody praise, we use a word like you're adequate, right? I mean, come on, if, you, if you're in a relationship with somebody and, and they say, do you love me? And they say, well, you're an adequate lover. I mean, come on, that's that relationship's not going to last probably. But what if they long. said you were effective as well, Jason? Oh, if I was effective? Yeah, well, adequate well, and yeah. effective. Hey, yeah, we can it's, all it's, dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's very analytical though, right? It, it is. And it's, although, no, it's not. It's clinical. It's not analytical. It's not, yeah. Okay. I think if it were analytical, there'd be greater variety and freshness in the vocabulary. And let me make clear, I'm not asking people to fancify there, I've just made up a word, their writing. I'm not asking people to, to dredge their, you know, um, SAT vocabulary lists out of deep, dark memory. Um, people often think that the longer the words and the fancier the sentences, the more they're going to impress the reader. But again, they're thinking of themselves, not the reader. And so I always say, just imagine the reader and what you want them to do the minute they finish reading the report. And then think of the fewest best words mm -hmm. to inspire them to do that. Because you're talking about the dumbing down and I would call it the diluting and the neutering of language because what I want to get to is is to for people to answer the question so what see here's me the auditor swinging in saying what's the risk so what why do I care and it's actually really serious because when people write on autopilot and they churn out these wordy, turgid sentences that could mean anything and nothing. What we eventually see is the reader reading something time and again and still having no idea what they're supposed to do. So that's a huge waste of resource. So that's a loss to the organization in purely financial terms. It's wasted time, it's wasted money. And then if they don't actually know what they're supposed to do, what are they going to do? Either the wrong thing or nothing. So, you know, as an auditor, you failed because your reader who is supposed to correct the problems you found is either going to do nothing, so the risk remains unmitigated, or they might hair off in the wrong direction down the wrong rabbit hole and burn up um, time and budget and resource correcting the wrong thing and the risk still remains unmitigated so you know we really do have these problems and i i've got two concrete examples that just popped into my head that i can share that might really bring this to life for some listeners and make them think oh wow i saw this recently in working papers or a draft report maybe we shouldn't do that when i worked in finance something i saw it just countless times was the weasel phrase um, issues around resource and leaving aside you know that weird preposition what are issues do you mean problem but you don't have the spine to say it do you mean a finding do you mean a topic of conversation do you mean children? He died without issue in 1756. You know, if something has four meanings, it has no meaning or less meaning than you might think. And issues around resource. Okay, you've got a problem with resource. What is it? Either you don't have enough people, 
you have them, but you haven't trained them yet, or you have them, you've trained them, and guess what? They are still naughty puppies, and you still have to put the newspaper down every morning. In which case, why? So unless we actually say specifically what the problem is, how can we possibly work with the first line on a solution through a recommendation? Um, another example I thought of was um, somebody very senior in audit. It wasn't a chief audit executive, but someone maybe a level below who I think after numerous bruising encounters with first line managers who are really resistant to findings, he, he was just, a, he was like a poor kicked puppy. And his way of dealing with it was to water down every report to the point of nothingness. And I remember looking at one report and I'm thinking of one person in particular, but it's not the only time I've seen it. I've read about two and a half thousand reports at this point. I'm still standing. And he talked about a risk of financial loss due to um, manual error. And I thought, okay. And then I kept reading and I saw that all the suggested actions to correct this were really to do with tightening up anti-fraud measures. And so I said, well, I'd read it as people are making mistakes with manual entry. You know, there's a problem with the system, problem with training, what is it? The answer was, oh no, actually the problem is fraud. And I said, well, how does manual error come into it? Has somebody mistakenly keyed in their own bank account details? instead of the customers. It wasn't an error if it's fraud. <laughs> Did somebody, you know, manually make an error by dropping their moral compass in the street on the way into work? How, you know, how did you get from fraud to manual error? And the response was, well, they react so badly when we talk about risk of financial loss due to fraud. And I said, but these are two vastly different things. You know, you're actually obscuring the truth. Well, and, and so here's here here's the interesting thing when you say that, right? Mm -hmm. Is auditors, you know, oh, we're we're uh, you know we're objective, uh, you know, we we all these words that we like to use, but the fact just what you just said, right, shows that that person was dumbing it down so much that they were actually almost being a little fraudulent themselves by not accurately describing what was going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we can end up, you know, not, not, com not communicating and actually not having that professional skepticism and due diligence that we are supposed to have in there. Because again, however you communicate, whether it's, you know, verbally or in a report, it is supposed to reflect the work that was actually done. So if, if you're watering it down so much that it's actually not explaining what, what actually happened, like risk of financial loss due to manual entry, uh, no, <laughs> right? Fraud related to AML or whatever it happened to be, right? The, the message isn't coming across. And in fact, I would argue that by doing that, you're outside of the standards that you're trying so so badly to follow by dumbing it down, you're actually not following the standards. Yeah, uh, the code of ethics, 
yeah. you know, plays a role here or should play a, uh, a role. I mean, in this case, I, I was coaching the person and the reason they were behaving in this way was because, as I said, they were like a, an oft kicked puppy, poor thing. And, you know, it was from anxiety and defensiveness. So it wasn't going to help for me to say, you know, you're basically making yourself an accomplice if fraud <laughs> does happen, because I don't think that would have helped. But, you know, I said, okay, why do you think this is more effective? Because surely, you know, if I were a senior manager, I would want to know where the holes are in my processes, in my area that I need to plug to stop fraud happening. I said, you're not telling them they're committing fraud. You're not accusing them of anything. You're just showing where the vulnerabilities are so that they can respond. And uh, the response was, oh, we found if we soften it, they receive it better. I said, I'm sure they do. And my question is, do they then address it in the way you expect or do you get repeat findings? And I think you know what the answer was, of course, repeat findings. Um, so those are two concrete examples that I've seen. I mean, I might associate them in my mind with, you know, some specific people I've worked with, but I've certainly seen them in numerous organizations, in numerous sectors. And I think this comes back to, um, you know, a point I made when we were having a conversation one day, which is the human element, the human dynamics. And you were saying we auditors, you know, we see ourselves as objective. We try to be, but, you know, we respond to things intuitively and emotionally as well. And I think we need to be aware of that and not think that we're somehow above um, common human responses and blind spots and assumptions. You know, we just have to be alert to them. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I use the word analytical a lot that I think a lot of times we are way more analytical than we should be. We need to be more emotional, not not to be emotional, but we mm -hmm. need to acknowledge and bring in emotion. Right. But 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 the word that you used of clinical is even stronger than the analytical, which I think is a better way of saying it. Right. So let's just kind of pause for a minute and let's just make some silly ass analogy here, right? That again, if we are dumbing down our words, mm -hmm. if we're using particular words like adequate, or, I mean, again, there's a whole bunch of words that we're using, right? Findings, issues, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? Risk. But if, <laughs> risk in, in general too, right? And we need to get away from using that risk, that word, and probably start talking about certainty management, but that's a whole idea for another Ooh. episode. I know. Well, well, you'll hear me talk about that more in the future. That's another but, rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, that's another rabbit hole. We don't have time to go down today, but uh, but I will, right? Listen, listen to future episodes. I'm going to be going down that hole. But so imagine again, right? That if mm -hmm. we are being so clinical in how we're doing it, that our work papers probably look like medical records, okay? And so again, I audited some hospitals and other medical facilities over the years. And I will tell you, it is Greek to me, right? You're reading those those files and you have no clue what they're actually talking about. They're using- it Should be Latin, Greek. surely. <laughs> but, yeah, well, I used to say Greek, but yeah, it really is Latin, right? <laughs> With all of that stuff. But so again, our work papers are probably very clinical, 
you know, analogize to a, a medical record. Now, if we're using those same terms, mm-hmm. right? if you're the doctor, you've got the medical record, you've got your work papers, quote unquote, right? Your medical records. Now, if you go into your patient, you've done all of these different tests, you've done all this stuff, you've got all these fat fancy Latin words that you use in medical terms, right? And, and you know, you, you, you sit down with the person that is your patient and you're trying to communicate to them what, what is going on, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm communicating to them. Well, if, if, I, if I sit down and say, well, Sarah, in my professional opinion, as a surgeon for the last 45 years, and I happen to be, you know, a board certified doctor of the American Physicians Association, blah, 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 bullshit, right? And, and we ran a battery of tests on you and found out that you have a, you know, left contusion, hemoglobin, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I'm, I don't even know the, the terms, right? But if I say that to you, you're going to scrunch up your nose and go, what the hell are you telling me? Do I have cancer or not? Right. It's like, I'll just tell you to go away and I'll just tell you to hand over the papers so I can read them for myself. Yeah. And the, and the patient's not going to know. Right. So how many of our audit reports are just like that, where somebody reads them and they're like, I don't even know what you're saying. I love that you raise this point because an analogy I use all the time with my clients, um, is a medical one because time and again, I look at executive summaries that are nothing more than a condensed um, recital of the um, findings. And what I say to them is the findings are coming from your test results. The executive summary is the diagnosis and you need to use your insight and your judgment. And at that point, people start freaking out because they say that's subjective, that's personal, that's my opinion. I say, yes, what else do you think you're being paid for besides your opinion? You know, not based on today's horoscope, but based on your experience, based on your extensive and thorough um, engagement work, based on the test results. Um, I said, because otherwise, you are like a patient or, you know, the first line is like the patient who goes to the doctor and says, I'm not feeling well, or it's a routine checkup. And as you say, Jason, the doctor orders a battery of tests and then calls the patient back and says, right, we've got your results. And then recites a litany of numbers. And their executive summary is 2.3. Yeah. And the executive summary is like, the litany of numbers and the exact summary should be saying you're healthy, you're not well, if you're not well, this is how bad it is, and this is what you need to do. Um, and that seems to that seems to ring a bell with them, but to get from their comfort zone of being able to quantify things and again putting that very objective clinical gloss on things to insight and judgment and putting some of your own personal slant on it 
you know, not talking about prejudice or assumption or bias, but talking about, you know, you, Jason, with all of your experience in all the different fields you worked in, you're bringing a, a body of, of work and knowledge to bear that can't be quantified, but it's an essential part of bringing that executive summary, that diagnosis to life. But it's really hard, I think, to get people in assurance functions to do that. Um, especially, I find, if they've got accountancy backgrounds, they cling to the quantifiable as if it's their blankie. Mm -hmm. um, and I do have to say often to junior auditors that just because you can count something doesn't mean it counts. You know? And especially with risk-based internal audit, you know, very often the biggest and scariest risks might not be easily quantifiable. Typically they're not. Then that's, exactly. that's what scares people. And that's why they, why they tend to go away from it and go audit something silly, like a hundred thousand dollar thing over here when they're ignoring a $50 million issue over on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing I, I can think of is, um, a finding that I use from um, a public audit body, um, not in the US, but um, they publish by law all of their reports. And they publish a report on the criminal justice system mm. in that jurisdiction. And they talked about the fact that all of the different organizations involved in criminal justice in this country, and there are hundreds of them, um, don't have any adequate or effective means of communicating with each other. One example they gave was they discovered that um, during a, a pilot they ran, um, a third of the people who um, uh, court officers went to fetch from their homes to appear in court were already in prison. So they thought they were at home, they were in prison, and they had been for some time, but the court officers didn't have that information. So it's not too much of a stretch to say, well, if they think people are in prison and they're out, or they think people are at home and they're in prison. Couldn't they be in prison? They're actually sitting they, at home, too. They're will, and, and they've had cases like that where people they thought were in prison were actually released. And nobody told the responsible parties and bad things happened. And yet the risk statements were all about um, efficiency and how many hundreds of thousands we could save if our communications process was more streamlined. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you're talking about people being in prison when you think they're at home and vice versa. And you honestly don't see any risks such as public safety. Um, you know, trust in the justice system, people's chance of getting a fair trial, because if all the bodies involved in criminal justice are supposed to share information, you know, are defense lawyers getting all of the prosecution's information? You know, th there are all of these things going on. I mean, data protection out the window. Um, none of that was mentioned. It was purely quantified. Oh, you know, we could save 100,000 every three weeks if we improved this process. Well, is you might again, stop some people getting killed as well. <laughs> well, that, and that's where I was going to go, right? Is again, that's a very clinical way of kind of saying it, right? Well, again, oh, we could save a couple hundred thousand dollars. I'm just throwing numbers out there, right? People probably aren't going to care about that as much as did you realize that we have 50, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, what's the right term rapists who are actually like violent rapists mm -hmm. who we think are supposed to be behind bars but are not and so yeah. are people going to care about a hundred thousand dollars of savings because of a communication breakdown or the fact that there could be 50 violent criminals that are out there yeah and stopping and maybe the next victim from being victimized right? and maybe they've served their sentence and they've been released appropriately but if you haven't told the probation officer if you haven't told the people who are supposed to arrange um you know secure housing if you haven't told the people who are supposed to provide support you know what do you think is going to happen Things are going to fall between the cracks and the consequences are a little bit worse for everyone involved than some, you know, missed opportunities to make savings. And, um, and I think that's an extreme case, but certainly public sector is where all this scary stuff happens, isn't it? It's where, you know, in the UK where we have the National Health Service, that's where people get their health care this public sector it's where you have prisons it's where you have child and family services it's where you have probate probation services um it's it's where you have social services you know the things that you know try to keep people alive and safe and well well it's 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 you know again it's just a good good reminder we're gonna have to kind of wrap up because we can't i'd love to have two or three hour episodes but nobody oh, wow. can listen to them all the way right <laughs> Actually, so some people like Joe. Well, and some people like Joe Rogan do have them, but yeah, most of the people that listen to this are like, "Hey, I'm done exercising. I got to get back to work now," or whatever it is. So, but absolutely, it, but, it's, but it's just very, um, you know, interesting. I mean, to, to kind of recap a couple of the things that you said, you know, um, the person who really matters is the reader, you know, and yeah. I've, I've heard that over and over and over and over again. But the, the fact that, you know, again, we're doing our organizations a disservice when we dumb down or when we make things too clinical, when we never actually call out the things that need to be called out, we're actually hurting our organization. We think, you know, and, and again, I understand like the guy you were talking about that you said is like the kicked puppy. We can sometimes, you know, feel like, gosh, you know, I can't say that because I'm going to get beat up again. Yeah. But at the same point, think about what's our job, right? And so again, if we're not saying the things that need to be said, then who else is going to say them? That's the whole purpose for having this kind of a function in place, right? And so again, if and you got to think about communicating to the people in a way that is going to move them as well, right? I mean, think about the last great novel that you read. Was it clinical in nature? I don't think you probably read it if it was clinical, right? <laughs> it brings in some emotion, you know, but again, there's the whole thing, like I think it was Mark Twain that said, you know, I apologize because I'm, I'm writing you a long letter because I didn't have the time to write you a short one. Exactly. Right. It's and hard it, to do. It's hard to do. And, and and there's certain authors, you know, like Steinbeck. Yeah. He only wrote two big books, right? What he called big books. Most of his books were like 100, 150 pages. Why? He could say what he needed to in that time frame, elicit the emotion, tell the story, get the reader to take the action, have the feelings from it 
in a very short period of time, right? Hemingway was kind of the same way. His books were typically smaller books as well, because both of them, you know, were of the opinion that, look, the book is only as long as it needs to be. You don't just keep blah, 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 blahing, right? But it takes so much awareness and discipline and hard attention to detail to distill what wants to say into something that is only as long as it needs to be and hits the mark. And I mean, just to sort of recap or not even recap, but just, you know, if I can leave listeners with with two thoughts, um, it's keep it simple and keep it human. And those are really the two hardest things to do. So no long words, no long sentences, Um, you know, keep things active, brief, concrete. That takes a lot of discipline. As you say, it's harder to do than just rambling page after page after page. And when I say keep it human, talk to people. We don't always want to do that. We want to send an email, send a report. But one pleasant surprise um, I've been running some webinars with the head of professional practices at the IAA UK over here during lockdowns. And um, it's been about what's changing in reporting during COVID that people can take with them afterwards. Because in times of crisis, things change. And sometimes it's for the better. And what we're seeing is people talking more to their audit colleagues, which they didn't do enough before, and talking to the first line and the second line. And ironically, now that they're physically not in proximity, having richer and more useful exchanges, whether it's over the phone or via Zoom or Teams or what have you, and keeping that human connection and human communication going so that then there's a sound basis on which the report can be um, you know, written and read. And some of the reports going out, I'm just punching the air and cheering because these are one or two pagers. And there was nothing stopping them from doing it before, but it took COVID to force people to say, right, how can we distill what we've done into a one pager? And the recipients, the senior people in their organizations, the regulators have been delighted because they're getting something that's clear, concise, relevant. If they need more info, they can go and say, hey, can I just see some of the test results that back that up? And it's there, but they don't have to wade through it throughout, you know, 20 or 30 or 70 pages. Um, so, you know, that's that's a really good thing that's come out is that the simple human side of it. Simple, but not easy. Well, it is. And it's, you know, that gets back to what you're saying, you know, about the person who matters the most is the reader. And yeah. again, if you've got a, a busy executive, I don't have time to read 50 pages, right? And so again, if you're gonna be human about it, realize the situation that you're putting other people in, you wonder why people aren't, aren't reading your reports? Because if it's 50 pages, they're not gonna read it. They can. I worked for two and a half years with the group chief executive of a global bank who would say, if somebody can't tell me what is happening in half a sheet of paper, 
then either they don't know or they're trying to hide something. And at first, I thought he was being really harsh. And then within a week or two, I saw what some of his divisional chief executives were sending me in response to what I thought were straightforward, innocent questions. And I would have to call them up and say, you come across as though you're trying to hide something. And I know you're not, but this is not going to work. Seriously, you know, (laughs) just whittle it down half a page no more well great stuff sarah i know we got to kind of wrap up for this time we didn't even get to talk about music this time but maybe we'll have to do a, another one and jump more into we talked more about writing so we talked we're talking about authors today instead that we got in some great. good ones too though right steinbeck orwell Hemingway. Hemingway. we talked about any other ones too some of my favorites yeah. oh well, there are so many but that is a topic for another um another podcast i think you can see some of the shelves behind me so yeah that might need to be a bit of a marathon if we get onto either books or music we will yeah. be here sometime exactly. it's been such a pleasure jason thank you so much well it is and thank you for the practical side of it too right because again i think sometimes we end up just being too theoretical there's some practical things that you threw out there today that you know again if you missed them the first time go back and re re-listen to this right because yeah when you listen to it again something is going to jump out at you as something practical that you can actually start working on this week and just a little bit at a time chip away at it and eventually you're going to be writing i don't want to use the word novels great novels like reports because that's not the intention but but it's going to be much more relevant to the reader, much more valuable to your organization. People are actually gonna get it and they're gonna take action and change instead of just ignoring your reports like they might be doing right now. Absolutely, and just an invitation to your listeners. Um, They wanna know more or get some top tips or ask any questions or even swap some reading lists. Um, All they have to do is get in touch with me on my website. And your website again, what, what is your website so people can know? It's www.sarahijames.com. And I'm going to spell that out. It's S-A-R-A-I-J-A-M-E-S. But you can also Google me on Sarah James Getting Words to Work and uh, you should find me. Sweet. Well, I know there will be people reaching out. So thanks Looking again, forward Sarah. forward to it. Thanks again, Sarah, for your time. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Jamming with Jason. Keep on rocking in the audit world. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share with your friends and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know what you enjoyed the most about the podcast. And you may even be featured on a future episode. When you're ready to turbocharge your leadership development, join the Briefing Leadership Program where you get access to everything in one place and can interact directly with me in the group. If you'd like to earn continuing professional education for listening to today's episode, head on over to C-Risk Academy's video on-demand learning platform at ondemand.criskacademy.com. Not only do you get a CPE certificate, but you will also have access to hundreds of video on-demand learning opportunities. 
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the individuals and not of their respective organizations.